1: It's Monday, February 12, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI TV. I'm Alex Smythe for Dave. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, East Coast residents are still feeling the aftermath of the storm that battered the region michelle McQuigg from the canadian press and updates you on that story arc is a new web browser for mac and ios that allows users to have an accessible customization marco pasco will tell you all about it and there's a new app in town called project tapestry Sean Priest gives you the scoop all that and more to come on today's episode of now but we begin with the top news stories of the day. We begin with a new study that has found a link between dementia and menopause symptoms. Dr. Zayer Ismail from the Hot Kiss Brain Institute says that there is a correlation between severe symptoms during menopause and how women are faring now.
2: And what we found was, and this is really novel, that the greater number of menopausal symptoms they had, the more impaired and the more symptoms they had in in both cognitive and
3: neuropsychiatric domains now.
1: He also said that there was a link between those who used estrogen treatments and those who didn't.
3: What we found was if they took an estrogen-based treatment,
2: Back then, during menopause, they had fewer neuropsychiatric symptoms. Now, compared to those who didn't take estrogen-based
1: treatment. In other news, a former, li- formal, let me try that again, a former Liberal MP is suing the RCMP and Ontario's Attorney General after being acquitted of charges against him. Narya Ahmed has this
4: report. In 2018, Raj Greywall left the Federal Liberal Caucus after his gambling problem came to light. And in 2020, RCMP charged him with breach of trust and fraud. The Crown alleged that Greywall offered access to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and help with immigration files in exchange for large loans that went toward his gambling debt. A judge concluded that a reasonable jury, given proper instruction, would not have been able to return a guilty verdict. Now, in a statement of claim filed in the Ontario Superior Court, Greywall is seeking millions of dollars in damages, alleging the Mounties were negligent in their investigation and that the Crown breached his right to a fair trial by unreasonably pursuing the prosecution. Naira Ahmed, the Canadian Press.
1: Experts say the Canada needs to take a more active role in developing a relationship with African nations or face irrelevancy within the region. Rob Westgate covers the story.
5: Stanley Echonu, the Nigerian director for the One campaign, says Canada should be a key partner with the continent. Africa is on track to double in population by 2050, and the World Bank says a looming continental free trade deal could be an economic juggernaut that lifts 30 million people out of extreme poverty. But experts say there's work to be done in improving governance, building huge infrastructure projects, and restructuring debt. Earlier this week, Chonu told Senators that Ottawa should finance projects like bridges and roads to stimulate growth and build Canada's brand. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press.
1: There is an option out there for folks who are looking to try to save some money on soaring grocery bills by enjoying some imperfect foods. What's that all about? Well, John Kennedy has more.
2: Anna launched Eat Impact in 2022 to reduce food waste and
4: provide doorstep delivery of cheap fruits and vegetables. The food products on offer typically fall short of the retail sector's strict aesthetic standards, but are more than
2: just edible. Drawing on 15 local farms and distributors, the business serves up tentacled carrots and slightly bruised apples to thousands of households in southern Ontario for $20 a box and hopes to double its business this year. Given the savings, waste awareness, and a bent towards regional organic goods, it's no surprise that many of the subscribers skew younger. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press.
1: And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the Daily Poll. We'll start with the results from Friday's poll, where we asked you, how much does the presence of pests influence what city or region you live in? 43% 43% of you said a lot, 14% said a little, and 14% said not at all. And we had a couple of responses on Facebooks. First off, Crafting Deborah wrote, it affects a lot, but so does the lack of affordable housing for disabled communities. And Pearly Pigtail said, a lot, would not live in bear territory, would be unbearable. Truly bravo there Pearly, with the pun, I appreciate it. Now for today's daily poll, this has to relate to the conversation I'm gonna be having with Marco Pasquale about a new web browser and online system. So I wanted to find out from the folks at home, what is your favorite web browser? And I'm not giving you any of these options of other or none above. I'm making you choose one of the ones listed. Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Microsoft Edge, or Apple Safari. And you can vote on the poll on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc or X at Accessible Media. But for now, let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller who is filling in for me as co-host and Laura Bain with the Entertainment Reports. So Elizabeth, we'll start with you on this one. What is your favorite web browser?
6: If I'm on my PC, then for sure, Google Chrome. I love that it so nicely interfaces with my G drive and my Google and my Gmail. Um, although I'm not loving that Gmail's getting rid of the basic HTML feature, I like uh, Chrome, too, because of the Wordle um, little plug-in that you can install to make Wordle accessible. That's very cool. Um, and I just like like the interface, like I said. Um, I will say, though, on my phone, Safari all the way. I do not have another browser installed on my phone. So definitely, I realize I'm fence sitting here, but it really depends on my device of choice that I'm using at the time.
1: Oh, and, and before we get to Laura, I want to follow up on this. So you say that you have a different uh, you just have Safari for your phone. And why don't you have any other have you tried any other browsers on the phone or you just Safari was uh, the uh, kind of the original uh, kind of uploaded uh, browser. And that's just kind of what you've always used out of just. necessity yeah, and comfort? I,
6: you know what? I've I've honestly only ever used Safari because it what was there. It's what was there. I've never I've never. Um, downloaded other browsers or like other apps for mail i just kind of use what's built in it seems to work really nicely i like the little sound that ticks to tell you if the page is loaded i think that's really kind of a, a neat little gimmick a little trick so yeah i tend to, i tend to use safari on the phone but you know what maybe after today i will branch out and, and download chrome or another browser and see how it goes
1: interesting laura bain what about you what's your favorite browser and are you like elizabeth where you have different ones for different devices
7: yeah, I'm going to say something very similar to Elizabeth here. And for me, it you know, it really comes down to browser accessibility. And I find uh, Chrome to be very accessible with JAWS. Now, I'm not a tech expert at all. So there could be someone out there saying, well, there's a way more accessible browser. That's just the one that I find I don't encounter a lot of issues with. And it's the one that was recommended to me by a JAWS trainer. So uh, that is what I use. I have found I used to encounter a lot of issues with Edge. I don't know if that is still the case. I sort of feel like I was burned with it a couple of years ago, not working well with the screen reader, so I haven't tried it again. But yeah, if I'm using my iPad or my iPhone, then of course the default browser on that is Safari and that is what I use and it works very well with voiceover.
1: So what would it take for you to download Chrome onto your other devices? Because you You both have mentioned that you you really like it for the PC usability, but as soon as you switch to other devices and specifically mentioned Apple devices, you just stick with Safari. So what's going to make you make that jump to add in Chrome into the equation, uh, Laura?
7: Uh, I mean, honestly, I don't feel like I have super strong feelings about it either way, so I would easily make that switch. I do have the Google app on my phone. I don't know if that's the same thing as using Chrome. Honestly, like I say, I'm not very tech savvy. I have the Google app on my phone, and I use that about half of the time, and then, uh, you know, it just depends on what it is. So if somebody sends me something in a text message, that's going to default opening to Safari, or if I'm on Facebook and I go to open something, a lot of times I'll just say open with browser because then that makes it a lot, of, you know, more accessible and that's going to open in safari so i suppose i do use chrome a little bit on my uh phone via the google app
1: and, and elizabeth what about you like what what is the point that you are willing to jump to another or uh, browser or try something else like if, if you're just comfortable using chrome using safari like what's gonna get you to download chrome onto your your device or try uh like you know safari on the computer
6: yeah I think for me, what it would take, and this has happened to me in the past um with school stuff is if I'm getting a document or I'm getting um you know some kind of web page that, for whatever reason works better in one browser than the other. So if I was doing some reading on my iPad and whatever reason um you know a pop up said you know for a better experience, download Chrome, I would do that. I do find that I tend to browser hop just a tiny bit if, again, I'm getting like a PDF for school and it, it will say, you know, um, preferred browser is Edge, it's certainly not my default, but I think that would sort of push me into trying something new or different on the phone, or if for whatever reason I was finding that I was maybe getting a lot of pop-ups with one browser, I might try to, to pop to another browser. But generally, it's that through school, you know, any kind of website or online learning management system, I know that a couple of them that I've used in the past, they specifically recommend using it in a specific browser. Um, so for that reason, I would make the switch. So I guess very related to school.
1: Fair enough. I mean, I always like, literally on the computer, the work computer I have now, the the uh, kind of the one that was pre-installed was Edged. I download Firefox and I still to this day just use Edge every single time so I, I think I, I I fall in line with that just as much as uh, you both are where it's just okay like, whatever is comfortable whatever is there typically unless it's really uh, a struggle from an accessibility standpoint or just a, a layout standpoint it's kind of hard to to make that switch but that said both of you should tune in when I talk to Marco because there may be a new contender, one that is built in with accessibility features. So I'm excited to find out about it. Maybe it will be another one for you both to add to your list. But for now, I will say uh, goodbye to both of you. And uh, for you at home, be sure to vote in on the poll. Again, Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. X at accessible media. You can also send an email feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone, give us a call 1 866 509 4545. Coming up after the break, East Coast residents are still feeling the aftermath of the storm that battered the region. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press updates you on the story. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and AMIplus.ca. And now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming and audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smite. Several stories made headlines this weekend, including the deaths of five people in Manitoba. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor for the Canadian press, and she's here to help share the latest. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Alex. So, Michelle, obviously, let's let's start with this uh, situation in Manitoba. This was rapidly sure. evolving uh, yesterday. It's a small town in Manitoba, south of Winnipeg. What do we know so far about the situation?
3: Yeah, if you'll bear with me, I think the easiest way to unpack what happened is to just quickly run through the chronology as it was presented to us by the police yesterday. And I'll just say right off the top that the account I will now present will raise a lot of questions and I don't have answers for them those are what we're hoping to gain in the days to come um, but what we were told by Manitoba RCMP yesterday is that there were three separate scenes involved and the first one they came across was when they got a report of a, a, a purported hit and run around 7:30 in the morning not too far from Carmen Manitoba that's a small town you mentioned at that point police say they found the body of, of a woman in the ditch near a highway Fast forward about two and a half hours and move about 70 kilometers north uh, to a municipality called Cartier, and the police get a call. The RCMP up there get a call to say that there's a car on fire. While the officers were en route, we're told a witness pulled three children from outside of from inside this burning car. When police got there, unfortunately, though the children were identified uh, were declared dead. And at that point, the cops also took a suspect into custody. All we know about him at this point is that it's a 29-year-old man. Uh, Further investigation, we don't have a sense of timeline at that point. That's all the police were saying, but presumably perhaps after some discussion with the suspect or whatnot, they went back to Carmen and found the body of another woman inside a house. All we know about everything at this point, we don't have any information on the ages of the people involved, their relationship to one another, but the police did come out and say that these incidents are all connected and that the, uh, the, the person currently in custody did know all those who died.
1: Mm-hmm. And so where does the investigation go from here? Because it's so early in, in the case then.
3: It is extremely early, yeah. The, the, the news conference that they held yesterday was in late afternoon, and as we mentioned, all of this was transpiring in the morning and early afternoon. So we didn't, th- there was a lot of information that we did not have. We're absolutely waiting for information now on, on the identities of those involved. Well, we don't even have a sense of whether or not the suspect in custody has been uh, has had to charges laid against them yet. Uh, so that's one thing we're going to be watching for with interest and that will dictate too where uh, where the investigation goes from here, what those charges may be. Uh, but I'm certain that police are now going to be combing these multiple scenes uh, and, and just trying to do as much as they can to piece together what sounds like a fairly complex chronology and set of circumstances.
1: Absolutely. So we'll leave this uh, story here for now. And I'm sure when there are updates, uh, you'll be able to share more details or myself in in other uh, news updates along the week. uh,
3: If those who want to follow along in real time, my colleague Brittany Hobson will be covering this today. So uh,
1: give her mm -hmm. give her socials a watch. Absolutely. And so there was another kind of, um, I guess, compounding story that was uh, uh, being kind of uh, followed by the Canadian press over the weekend. And this has to do with the aftermath of the winter storm that uh, blasted the region last week. So this included, (laughs) you know, uh, a situation in in Cape Breton. And uh, how has the snow and the ice impacted that area?
3: Oh, boy. It is still ongoing. And right off the top, I'll just say that, unfortunately, Nova Scotia is bracing for still more snow. There's uh, Mm -hmm. weather warnings in place for the province and a couple of 20 to 30 more centimetres on the way in the next day or two, which is not great news for places like Cape Breton that already got about 150 centimetres in last weekend's dump, a metre and a half of the stuff, which is just bonkers. Um, The aftermath continues in different ways. The most high-profile one recently, uh, fortunately, could have been a whole lot worse than it was but still plenty scary when there was an explosion at a senior's home in Sydney. Um, One person was injured and taken to hospital in fairly serious condition but fortunately there were no fatalities and the reason that this explosion is being blamed on the weather is because uh, it's now been identified that the cause was snow sliding off the roof and hitting some kind of ignition source on the way down and this one caused an explosion. Uh, My colleague Michael Tutton spoke to officials on the weekend and apparently a call like that one was the fourth that the Cape Breton Fire Department had received in, in, in just a couple of days. It was the only one that actually led to a fire. Clearly, the risk is is there and is real, and it's one that's very much top of mind for Cape Breton residents right now. Um, they're also focusing just some on, on getting snow cleared off roofs because this, of course, poses a major infrastructure stress on on, on mm-hmm. buildings that might not be equipped for this sort of thing
1: well absolutely i mean that amount of weight and mass and then with the warming temperatures and then as you mentioned uh, mm. before there's a, they're expecting more uh snow this week in the region so the more you can clear now the better prepared you are during the week were there melting the melting
3: of the, uh... the mass is important too for for yes. both roof and street clearance because it does make the snow heavier and more difficult to move and of course more likely to harden into ice if the temperature drops quickly
1: and uh, you mentioned there was uh, one injury in this last What what about the other um, kind of uh, people affected? How are, are they uh, being assisted during this time?
3: Yeah, uh, they, they had to find temporary accommodations for several of them. Um, everyone had to be evacuated from the home. Some went to families. Uh, some have been rehoused elsewhere for the moment. Uh, it, it's a bit of a production because there were, uh, I'd say, close to 90 or 100 people that needed to be relocated mm-hmm. because of this.
1: Uh, another story that the CPC, uh, uh, sorry, uh, CP has been, uh, um, uh, kind of following it, it's just the impact that uh, the aftermath has had on folks with disabilities. So, what were the yeah. residents that they spoke to? Like, what were they saying as some of the key issues as the aftermath of the storm came through?
3: Well, they were outlining concerns that I'm sure are familiar to every one of us, either on the air right now or in the audience today, uh, talking about how, how snow clearance practices make it almost impossible for, for navigation, was the main focus of yesterday's story. That's who my colleague Lindsay Armstrong was able to speak to, a guide dog user and and a, and a wheelchair user, both of whom are raising different issues about the, the snow clearance and the mobility challenges that it poses. Uh, so whether it's the, the narrowness of paths that cannot accommodate mobility aids or the, the slipperiness of conditions that makes it difficult to walk, the huge, huge snow banks that block out key orientation markers and sound markers. And in the case of the person that Lindsay spoke to yesterday, uh, someone who was also flagging the the effect that extreme light sensitivity would have for her, mm-hmm. um, just trying to navigate around these huge snowbanks. So again, um, things that probably sound obvious to many of us in this room, but that we know don't always get uh, don't always come up in in everyday conversation about these things.
1: Well, and, it, and that's why it's always uh, refreshing when you do see, uh, you know, uh, the, there are stories being put out there the, on uh, a national scale. It's like, hey, these are the impacts of uh, folks with disabilities. Were They're still involved in these situations as well. They need help and support. It's not just, oh, well, we can't clear the snow because it's unfortunate you have to walk around it or walk on top. No, no, there's actual accessibility issues that you physically cannot get through these conditions. and so it. Oh, sure. Be- more action taken to to address it so it's always uh, you know positive to hear and see that
3: people talked about the realities that we've all confronted i'm sure of of being stuck at home for days at a time after something like this because you just can't get out uh again it's one of those things that falls by the wayside but when my colleague i was thinking of assigning it anyway but when my colleague pitched it all by herself uh, she found a very receptive editor yesterday (laughs) so (laughs) Happy to get that one out. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. Michelle, thank you for this, and uh, we'll chat with you on Friday as part of the news panel then.
3: Looking forward to it. Thanks, Alex.
1: Okay, that was Michelle McGrigg, the Weekend News Editor with the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, Arc is a new web browser for Mac and iOS that allows users to have accessible customization. Marco Pasqua tells you all about it. You're watching Now with Dave Brown. On AMI TV, welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Mike, and for Dave. There's a new web browser for Mac and iOS users. The ARC browser offers lots of customization. They've also built in accessibility features. ARC caught up with Marco ARC caught Marco Pascua's attention. And Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hello, Marco. How are you doing today? So well, Alex, how are you? I'm doing great. So why did this browser jump out to you? Well,
2: quite simply, you know, it, it handles two things with the when it comes to the internet and browsing the web, and that's tab management and just the general clutter of the internet. Um, I was just doing a regular YouTube surfing, and all of a sudden, the thumbnail for the Arc browser popped up on my screen, and I said, what the heck is this? I click on it and really um, kind of brought down this story uh, of why the creators made the browser to simplify the internet, and now with large language models and AI out there, basically being more conversational for people. I thought, how cool is it that they're really thinking at the forefront of uh, making the internet more simple for everyone, but as an offshoot to that, that actually increases the accessibility of many things over the internet, um, just by the way in which they've designed this browser. And so I was completely blown
1: away. Yeah, And you mentioned AI so uh, the browser actually uses it to summarize pages and auto generate image descriptions. What's your take on how they've incorporated those features and using AI to help with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it sounds very promising. Now, I, full disclosure, I'm not an iOS or a Mac user, so I have to take their word for it at this time. But what I can say is the, the integration on the Browse for Me feature that they have on, on iOS looks incredible. Basically, imagine if you add a question about a particular history of a building that you're in and say, hey, what's the history of this building? It will actually... Pull from the internet multiple sources of giving you that information and actually create in real time a landing page that is accessible that you can scroll through that has the highlights or cliff notes of all of those major things. Uh, the types of movies that location has been featured in, images that naturally you can use and scroll through a, a carousel scroller. Um, I'm just blown away that it's thinking about how to digest the internet in a different and a new way and
1: that's the part that kind of me about it. Well, one thing that I, I'm kind of trying to figure out with, with Arc is the fact that as you mentioned, the accessibility features, it's, it's really prominent within uh, this browser. But anyone who, who would require or use accessibility features probably already have them in some way, shape or form on their device. So what are the odds that Arc is going to seamlessly blend the accessibility setting someone already has with their new browser?
2: I would hope very well. Uh, you know, They started the development for this browser on iOS and uh, iOS and Mac has traditionally been very good when it comes to accessibility and accessibility features out the box. And so I would hope that through their development, they've been following the best practices and therefore their app is able to kind of seamlessly integrate with those features already available on your phone so that it doesn't become a foreign experience for you. I get the impression for these Um, these developers, that they're trying to be game changers in terms of the ways that we see the Internet. You know, when when the Chrome browser first came out, um, it was doing things a lot different. It wasn't as static as stale as we were used to seeing with things like Internet Explorer. And I think that this is their defining moment. They're trying to really um, go from an independent approach, utilize many different developers out there who are wanting to make tools to make life easier on the Internet. And that's the part that kind of um, I think is what's gonna set them apart and make it a different experience for everyone.
1: Well, and and you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's all about setting yourself apart from the other established browsers out there and and kind of pushing someone to want to change or or navigate and and, uh, migrate over to your new uh, kind of browser, your new system. The, it seems like the buzzword or, or kind of the focus really beyond just the use of AI it's uh, in technology has been the idea of limiting f- what uh, we call friction within uh, mm. devices and in connectivity so not having to go through multiple different steps to access information access videos you know photos what have you so this seems to be kind of eliminating that as you say and you know it, it's generating this like and populating this page where you don't have to navigate all those spaces it's bringing it to you so How much does friction get in the way of what you want to do on the web?
2: Uh, I mean, quite a bit, right? I mean, how many times have you gone to go look up a particular blog post or a recipe, but you're inundated with ads on the page and you're re- literally scrolling for minutes just to get down to the actual recipe itself. Um, what this does is it removes all of that. It extracts that information that's most prevalent and it pops it out in a in a high contrast page, if I might add, um, that really just shows you the cliff notes, the, the points that you need to know for this recipe, for example, um, in, in a way that that makes sense with photos and gives you options as to how it got there and and, and, and that you can kind of jump around in that way. And I think that that is so cool it's also got a sidebar feature where if you type in something naturally like just show me the top um, keynote presentations from Steve Jobs just by saying that it's gonna load you know five different YouTube links on the side for you automatically and start to autoplay the first one and give it to you in a way that you can actually go through those various links um, without having to think oh yeah uh, what what did I want to look up the iPhone the iPad like what are the different uh, unveilings that I can find. It already knows that for you just based on you naturally asking that question. And I think for individuals with cognitive disabilities, this is also going to streamline things like work. So when you talk about friction on the internet, I think that streamlining things like research, um, understanding, and just bringing you down to the brass tacks, that's the part I want to look forward to. Uh, As a uh, Windows user, as an Android user, I don't have access yet. However, I'm told that the app and uh, browser is coming to those platforms in the spring, so we're only a couple of months away.
1: So, are you going to be one of those like early adopters? As soon as it's on, you're you're downloading it, you're switching. That's going to become your browser of choice. Then,
2: uh, I don't know about directly switching. You know, it's like a marriage with your browser. You get so used to uh, the features and the comfort that is there. However, I am going to. Take it for a test spin. I'm so looking forward to it. You know the nerd in me and the person who took as a, sci- as a uh, 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 science class when I was in high school. I took computer programming, so this is kind of a throwback for me uh, to sort of my roots a- as a programmer, but also as somebody who loves accessibility and just making life easier. So I think for all my friends who are watching this segment or listening to the segment today, really, if you have iOS or you have Mac, there's nothing. There's no harm in giving it a shot trying it out and seeing if it does simplify your life ultimately that is the principles behind universal design is making sure that it's functional and it works for everybody
1: one like potential concern i could see around arc is the fact that so many of these uh, kind of companies that have their browsers and, and and their kind of online platforms a lot of the revenue they generate is through things like advertisement it is as you mentioned like it, it's all the stuff that kind of Fills the screen along with the content you actually want. Like, are there going to be concerns that of the longevity potentially of ARC or issues around, you know, eliminating potential ad revenues for um, like the websites that they're pulling this information from?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really interesting question. I think that because they're approaching this from sort of an indie developer approach, they're looking at new and interesting ways in which, um, you know, they can generate revenue as a platform. And I think that this is different enough that they're not going to just get immediately swallowed up by another platform or by, like, say, Google um, or Safari or something like this. I mean, they have the opportunity in those bigger platforms to do something similar, but this has really developed this sort of... um, uh anti you know typical uh approach to to surfing the web and i think that they have a loyal fan base that's really there so as far as helping them to stay afloat financially i think that that is going to be a challenge you're absolutely right but if the goal is to do things differently then they're not just going to follow the exact same model of the googles of the world where they know that your data is the currency um i I, and i don't know how they they are going to go about doing that
1: um Mm -hmm. but i'm interested in following along the journey to find out. Well, Marco, this topic kind of inspired our daily poll question for the day. So I want to ask it to you, what is your favorite web browser? Is it Google Chrome? Is it Mozilla Firefox? Is it Microsoft Edge or Apple Safari? Mm,
2: I would just say out of that list, uh, Google Chrome, just because I am in the Google sort of universe or platform uh, for everything because of the fact that I have a bunch of Google accounts. um, I'm an Android user, as I said, and the seamless integration uh, between platforms for me um, makes it super easy.
1: But you know what? I might be an Arc browser user very soon, so (laughs) we'll see. And one other interesting caveat that came out from the roundtable discussion was the fact that both Elizabeth and Laura seem to have different browsers for the different devices. So uh, are you a Google Chrome enthusiast like across all your devices or do you have different ones for the different devices you have from computer to phone to tablets, things like that?
2: Uh, Generally, I stick to Chrome, but I do use Firefox for certain applications. Um, I find that, uh, you know, Firefox can be less intrusive of things. Um, Again, like, it depends on really what you're going for. At the end of the day, use your own safety when it comes to the internet, no matter what your browser is. And I say, you know, like, I, I still utilize a VPN for certain things and access to certain content. And that's, you know, really sort of interesting too, right? It's like, how are developers for browsers and things going to be integrating as People are more concerned now about their privacy on the internet, about security, and about things of this nature, but also create a smooth experience for somebody who's browsing, depending on all the different ways in which you can go and use the internet out there. Um, I do a lot of research, and so certain browsers are better
1: for, for certain things. Absolutely. Marco, thank you so much for, for bringing the Arc uh, browser forward. I've never heard of it. I'm excited to take it for a spin myself and see how it works.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If you've, if you've gotten used to large language models and some chat bots and things out there, it's going to be very similar to something like that. But it is going to be that combination of a web browser uh, search engine and
1: just, uh, you know, the Internet in general. So I'm curious to hear everybody's feedback. So thanks, Alex. Well, perfect. That is Marco Pasqua. He is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller will share the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute.
5: Last week ended on a slightly up note for Bay Street. Toronto's S&P TSX added 90 points to close at 21,010. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 55 points down to 38,672 while the Nasdaq rose 197 points up to 15,991. Asian markets started this week off with mostly soft performances. Japan's Nikkei closed up just 34 points at 36,897. Australia's benchmark rose and India's Sensex edged lower. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong is closed for the Lunar New Year. Beanfield Metro Connect, a small telecom company, is calling on the CRTC to ban bigger service providers from offering bulk deals for multi-year contracts, effectively eliminating consumer choice and limiting competition. And finally, the Looney is trading this morning at 74.27 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate.
1: It's now time for the weather report with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you are following up on a weather story that I covered last week, where it was near record low snow and ski conditions and and the lack of snow in BC was a big concern, but you're here to offer up some positivity and good vibes on a Monday.
6: I am I'm talking some good vibrations and I did get your little rhyme there low snow I like it Alex. <laughs> um so skiers will delight because there's going to be wonderful skiing conditions on Tuesday at all resorts across the province of British Columbia over 20 centimeters of that fresh white stuff has fallen in many areas of the province and we're going to see snow bringing hope to those resorts in BC that have been affected so so much by that um, the winter season has been tough for little you know the, the resorts with very little snow for them to to have um, for the resort so you know some events have been canceled due to the lack of snow or postponed but now there's good news on that front uh, with new snowfall arriving. And that storm brought snow to BC and it started snowing on Saturday of this weekend and it continued into Sunday. Places like Gross Mountain, Mount Washington and Sun Peaks got significant snowfall. More snow good news is expected in the interior today and this is good again for those resorts but it's going to probably cause some travel to delay so be mindful of that on those mountain passes today. And the snow is expected to stop this evening. But, you know, my, you know, Alex, I was thinking about this, the resorts really have been effect, impacted, but towns like Whistler, where they're so mm-hmm. reliant on ski resorts, you know, really impacted. I was actually in Whistler recently. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the resorts are the livelihood of that town. So it's it's having a huge impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and when you have to, you're forced to, to make snow opposed to having the natural uh, kind of fallen snow, especially in these hotbed of ski and uh, yeah. snowboard country, it's just not the same. And then, and uh, the avids here may not even go for it. So it's great to see that there's actually natural snow coming to the region. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Don't go anywhere. We'll check in with you later on in the show. But coming up next, new on Netflix is the animated movie Orion and the Dark and Amy Amante will share her review. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. I'm Alex Smythe. A child's fear of the dark is fairly common. Their imagination of what can be seen is far more vivid than the actual reality. This is the plot for the animated fantasy film Orion and the Dark. And here's a clip from the trailer. At a school.
8: My name is Orion, and I'm afraid. Afraid of what you want to know? It's most things to be candid. Girls in general. Being responsible
7: for my team music.
2: A ball bounces off
0: his
8: face. Giving the wrong answer
7: in class. Yeah. Richie Panici. Good night, Orion.
0: In his bedroom.
7: But all the things I'm afraid of.
9: He
0: sets up nightlights. They lose power.
7: I'm most afraid of the dark.
0: A smoky creature appears behind him. Using a flashlight, he turns. It's
2: gone. It reappears.
9: What are you?
2: Isn't that obvious? The room's dark. It's dark out. Hello, I'm dark.
1: Of all the kids who are terrified, you are by far the (gasps) loudest, the most obnoxious, and frankly, you're on a whole different level. You're keeping a list? Yes, I'm keeping a list. You know how many kids are afraid of me? You come watch me do my job for one night, and you'll finally see that I'm nothing to be afraid of. Are you in, or are you in? I'm... They burst through the roof. (laughs) <laughs> that was a clip from the Netflix animated movie Orion and the dark entertainment critic Amy Amanti from Vancouver has her review of the film. Hello, Amy.
9: Good morning, Alex. How are you?
1: I'm not too bad. So you hadn't hit play on an animated film in a while. So why did you choose this one to get back into that animated world?
4: Well,
9: um, I guess a part partly because I thought it was kind of cute when the trailer came up. But the other part of it is just because, you know, the challenge of trying to find something that's new um, is, is just that it's a challenge. There's not a lot of content um, that is, you know, brand, brand new. And so um, that was also a challenge. So this popped up at my feed as brand, brand new. And I thought, okay, well, let's, uh, let's have a gander. So kind of twofold.
1: And it's also original, too. That's something else to to keep in mind. You can have a lot of new things, but it's not tied seemingly to any other kind of other work or something like that. This is something, a fresh, original idea. So uh, this movie kind of been marketed as a few different genres from, from the animated side to the fantasy adventure and to comedy. So how well did it live up to those different genres that it was trying to fit in with?
9: Well, I mean, definitely, it lives up to animated because it <laughs> is animated. Uh, but you're right. You know, the the more times that we see how a movie is marketed, they seem to keep adding genres to the list. Because I, I think possibly this feels to me like you know when you uh, you know when you want to Google something that it helps with your um, search engine optimization, right? If you're like, I want to watch a comedy film, so this would come up. Or I want to watch a fantasy. This would right. Uh, it's like the more the more ways that they tag a film, the the more ways you can find it, so it's definitely an animated film comedy. Yes, there's some lovely moments of wit and comedy in this fantasy. Well, I mean, let's think about it. You know, dark comes alive. Does that happen in real life? Probably not. So, is that a fantasy? Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is, is that you know they're combining a whole bunch of things here so that they can really um, take a wide audience range Um, and i find that animated is has always done this um to some degree but um, when you consider i don't know if you remember back in the days before some of these companies sort of combined together but like disney used to be a lot about having uh animated films specifically for children and then you had Mm -hmm. the pixars that came out with animated films that sort of lent themselves more to um uh, a family or like like had had content in it that adults would find just as entertaining kind of like a a, a subliminal or a you know more of a mature joke that might uh, might go over a child's head but was really resonant to an adult um mm. so this kind of blends all of those kinds of things together so um you know if you were sitting and watching it with uh, you know your kids and your parents and your grandparents you know there'd be something for everybody in it
1: well, and a big part of uh, an animated movie success all has to deal with the quality of the voiceover work because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, you have to rely even more on kind of selling these characters when, um, as an actor, you physically can't really uh, convey the same level of emotion because it's all animated. So how engaging were these voiceover performances and, and how much did they help bring these characters to life?
9: Yeah, and, and even, you know, Alex, the process of, you know, when you're on stage with other actors doing scene work together, you know, you're, you're in close proximity sometimes, I shouldn't say sometimes, but you know, all sighted actors are, are tasked to do eye contact and all of that kind of stuff to create Um, engagement and connection between the performers, right? To make it feel as real and authentic as possible, whether you're in a Marvel movie or in a, you know, a movie that's, you know, about two people getting married or like, you know, something that's really close to to reality. Um, When you are recording voiceover stuff, you're often alone in a studio by yourself. It's not like they get all the characters together in a scene and you're in a room together in a studio. You're all by yourself, often recording Uh, just the lines of your character and the person who perhaps might be feeding you the opposite lines if you even get that because oftentimes you just are recording your lines and nobody's reciprocating the lines on the other end it's very much a you know you're doing your big animated lines and they're going yeah uh uh-huh and they're responding like this and then you're doing your big animated lines and they're responding like this right so your your scene partner is not a trained actor giving you anything uh so you have to really sort of have a different level of skill to be able to do that. So I found the voices to be very engaging. One of the fun things for me about animated films in general is trying to see if I can recognize Mm. the voices of famous people when I listen to them or to, um, uh, because sometimes they obscure their voices, right? They manipulate them. and sometimes they don't, it just depends on, you know, like Jim Carrey is classic at this, right? Depends on what kind of character they're doing. And I actually thought that the voice of dark who we uh, heard in this clip was yeah. Seth Rogen. He sounded so much like Seth Rogen to me.
1: No, hey, are all. you saying, are you saying it's not Seth Rogen? Cause that was my exact thought. I was going to say uh, my hundred percent. My guess is Seth Rogen is the voice of dark, but it's not Seth Rogen.
9: It's not, have you got any other oh. guesses?
1: Ooh, not Seth Rogen. Geez. Uh no. I I have no idea uh, who is it.
9: Paul Walker Hauser.
1: I don't even recognize who that is. Un- unfortunately, the name does not ring a bell. Um, but, nope, uh, no. the, but and, and so like this is uh like the, as you say, it, it's that fun. It's like kind of discovering, it's like who yeah. is it, or it's like you you know they have that certain cadence or tone that just like kind of rings in your ear, and you just start thinking, it's like I know that voice from something. Yes. I'm so familiar, yeah. So uh, what about some of the other uh, uh, characters? Were there other famous voices or or other uh, kind of people, whether they're being a bit more natural in their voice or a bit more of that manipulation? Were there other kind of key actors and voices in this uh, movie?
9: Yeah, I mean, the only one that I was able to recognize was Angela Bassett, because I've heard Mm -hmm. her voice a thousand times, and she plays um, the character Sweet Dreams, um, so it was lovely to, to go, oh, I know that voice, I know that voice. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, there are lots of other, like, really talented voices. Ike Barinholtz um, didn't recognize okay. his voice, but certainly, like, know his name and um, would have, uh, you know, recognized his, probably his persona had he been in person um, somewhere. Uh, Colin Hanks, um, which is Tom Hanks' son. Not a voice I'm overly familiar with, but certainly know the name. And Jacob Tremblay um, plays our young Colin, uh, sorry, our young or- Orion, and um, not a voice I recognize uh, right away either. But again, a name that's big, and you know, and has been yeah. in movies. So, um, yeah, some big players in this particular film.
1: Oh, well, and I, I wonder too if there's a bit of that uh, freedom for those types of actors, where you say, like, yeah, like you know, the the three you listed, you would recognize them, you would see them in a a, a film or a TV show, and be like, oh, well, oh, that's Ike Bernholtz, oh, that's Jacob Tremblay, oh, that's Colin Hanks, but because maybe their voice is a bit less familiar, it gives them a bit of a freedom and blank slate to to kind of work with and kind of show off their their talent and ability and let people maybe rediscover It's like, oh, I really like this voice or this character. Oh, wait, it's this person I already knew. Like, it kind of may change that perspective or or perception of what the actor can do.
9: Yeah, absolutely it does. There's sort of a little... um... Anonymity there for some, you know, so to speak. Um, So actors can play, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do with your voice when you get cast in a, in a, a piece like this. And certainly the character of Dark and the character of Sweet Dreams are these animated fantasy characters. Jacob uh, Tremblay and Colin Hanks are voicing, you know, a human animated character. And so their voices are going to be less sort of extreme, right? And more realistic in tone and quality. So I don't think that they did a lot of um, manipulation of their voices. But still, you know, if they were in a TV sitcom, you might recognize them more than you would in an animation thing. But the other thing about animation that's interesting is that these, um, once you know who these voices are, once you recognize them, you start to go, huh. There is a persona of this character that takes on who the actor is. And so even this Mm -hmm. um, uh, Paul Walker Hauser, who is not uh, an actor that I'm overly familiar with. Um, I looked up some of the movies he's in, and yes, I know these movies, but they were never movies that I saw. Um, He is very much like a Seth Rogen in his sort of body shape and size and beard and all that kind of stuff. And so Dark has a big sort of chunky body and, you know, moves a little uh, pokey and lumberly and right. So they start to take on these personas of the actors. And a part of me wonders if, you know, once they cast their characters, if sometimes they um, like cast their voices, sometimes they start to manipulate the way that the characters might be drawn just a little bit. Certainly I know that in facial expressions. So, you know, um, young Orion, the way he's, uh, drawn or animated might t- take on some of the facial features of uh, of what Dr- uh, Jacob Tremblay looks like when he talks, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, one hand works with the other. And I think that that's a really beautiful way of combining the artwork.
1: And so how was the audio description on the movie?
9: You know, audio description and animated films, I always find to be a little bit challenging, especially mm-hmm. in the fantasy adventure genre, because you have Like, Dark is not a real-life character, friends, right? So, you know, he's going to be doing things, flying and stretching and all sorts of things that, like, typical humans can't do. And so audio description really has to fit in really fast between lines of dialogue, things that you're, you may not, like, moves and and actions that you may be unfamiliar with um, because the human body doesn't do that kind of movement, right? Um, So sometimes I find that they over-describe things to try and make it um, you know, just trying to describe every moment. They did this a lot with the Incredibles and how they stretched and, you know, conformed their, their body in these really, really eccentric ways. And I was like, okay, that's just like too much pretzeling for me to try and imagine. Um, and so in some ways they did a little bit of that, but overall, I think it was a really nice, um, the the description was really nice and and kind of keeping me with the storyline, um, and keeping me in the world of dark, and orion together because orion is scared of everything right and goes on this journey with dark for one 24 hour meets his friends who are sweet dreams and all the people all of the characters that help you help you or don't help you uh, when you're asleep at night just to kind of quell his fears a little bit does it work or not i'm not going to give that away but um but that's kind of the idea of the film and so he's gotta he's gotta figure out how to get over his fears a little bit and, and so
1: dark helps and so back. amy Uh, We we have to get out of here, but uh, before we do, I quickly want to know, should folks uh, press play on this one?
9: Yeah, I say absolutely press play on this one. It's cute, it's sweet, it has a lovely message to it, and families can watch it together and everybody will get something out of it.
1: Awesome. Amy, thank you so much for this. We'll chat again soon.
9: Sounds good, Alex. Thank you.
1: That was AMI entertainment critic Amy Amante in Vancouver, BC, and she reviewed Orion and the Dark on Netflix. In one minute, Laura Bain shares the entertainment report and all about Usher and the Super Bowl and the halftime. But first, before we get to any of that excitement, the EV revolution is making waves in the boating industry. Here's reporter Mike Debusky with Tech Trends. From ABC News Tech Trends, as the auto industry negotiates the transition away from
2: gasoline, the boating world is taking notes. One of the great things is we're benefiting from all that hard work and research and technology that's being developed for auto
1: is starting to come into boats. Larry Russo is a boat dealer with Marine Max. He says some boats are beginning the transition to electric power with their auxiliary
2: functions. So a lot of our larger boats now would have a gas or a diesel power, uh, diesel, fuel generator in them to run air conditioning, electricity, anything you'd run with a you know a household type appliance, and now we're seeing. Uh, battery power instead or as an option.
1: But electric propulsion for boats is a different proposition with current EV boats limited to smaller
0: leisure
2: vessels. We have some fully electric boats tend to be smaller powered boats
1: uh, with limited range. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubuski, ABC News. Thank you very much Mike. Now there was a lot that happened at the Super Bowl yesterday beyond just the game itself and Laura Bain is here to recap all the entertainment news from the event. Hello again Laura.
7: Hi, Alex. And yeah, uh, one of the things, of course, that people are talking about this morning is Usher's halftime show. I had mentioned on Friday that he asked for an extra two minutes beyond what performers normally get. And he certainly used that doing like a medley of his some of his big hits and bringing out lots of guests, including Ludacris, Little John, lots of people had predicted that Alicia Keys, who I think is absolutely fantastic. And we have a little clip of the halftime show to play for folks this morning. baby, let's go. Yeah, so
10: you know, I
7: heard some negative comments before watching this. I I didn't watch the Super Bowl last night, as as lots of people who watch this show will know what... I did uh, watch the halftime show this morning and I'd heard some negative comments about it, that it was a little bit too chaotic and maybe had a lot going on. So perhaps that set the bar low for my expectations, but I was really blown away. You know, I was impressed. I thought it had a very Vegas vibe to it, which is certainly appropriate for the location. Yeah. And I also thought the level of dancing and singing at the same time was really impressive as an athletic feat. No, he didn't sound perfect on every note, but he was really, really moving even being on roller skates at one point and obviously not lip-syncing but alex when we connected this morning i had the feeling you were a little less impressed is that the
1: case it, it's not that I, I was less impressed i i was very impressed what he was able to do you mentioned it's just all the choreography the dancing the singing the costume change i think he probably had about like four or five costume changes and wardrobe changes throughout his set it was more just the idea of usher as the halftime performer in general because you know he you mentioned some of the the guests that he had on the collabs that he had on the fact is usher is not exactly a lot of his music is is fantastic but it's not meant to pump you up in the same way as other performers from the past and i think it was really evident when you had little john doing "Turn down for what as a, like a t for yeah to end the show because he Usher doesn't have that kind of song to pump you up other than yeah and you didn't want to give it away before the ending so you have one of your uh, collaborators come on do one of his own songs so to get the uh, the fans pumped up so you can uh, kind of knock them down with the uh, at the end so I, I thought that was kind of a bit telling that they had that overall still very entertaining lots of fun. Very visual, very exciting, like you're kind of seeing like people on rollerblades and dancing, there there were poles that were on, there were like contortionists, there was so much happening, it was really impressive, really fit the Vegas vibe.
7: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I might just have to default to your wisdom there on uh, how it fits with other halftime shows or the overall vibe of the game, because, of course, I was watching it in isolation. So, uh, yeah, harder to get a read on that. Now, something else that people were talking about was Taylor Swift uh, leading up to the game. She was there, of course, cheering on Travis Kelsey, and there was lots of speculation. Would there perhaps be a proposal? Would she maybe get up and, and perform somehow? But None of those things happened. I felt like there really wasn't a ton of big Taylor news this morning. Other than that, they did have a kiss to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs win. Um, now, Travis Kelsey did sing a little bit. He did Viva. He sang Viva Las Vegas. It was uh, really, really terrible. But uh, I guess you have to let him off the hook. He had just... Just play the game. And of course, the other big news out today about what happened at the Super Bowl was Beyonce and announcing new music uh, and a new album coming out. This was after a setup of a Verizon commercial where she's trying to break the internet, doing different things. I, kind of enjoyed that commercial um, and nothing's working and then she says okay they're ready drop the new music and then she uh, immediately went ahead and released two new tracks and as I say announced a new album and we have one of those tracks to play Texas Hold'em.
1: Okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm getting behind this one. You know, it's uh, got Texas Hold'em. It's got a bit of that country twang, that vibe. You know, it's got you kind of into it. It's not necessarily her, her, her classic stuff, but hey, I'm into it so far, Laura.
7: Yeah, uh, me too. And same thing, 16 Carriages is the other track that she released. Uh, very country vibe and she's wearing a a cowboy hat on both of the kind of art for these singles so I think we can expect a country album and I'm really curious to see how Beyonce might top some of the country charts over the next few months or might uh, take home some country music association awards uh, next year so yeah I think it's really cool but uh, I I don't want to feed into this I'll say there is (laughs) kind of this rivalry that's out there between Taylor Taylor Swift and Beyonce, which is you know largely media-generated and probably rooted in misogyny that we just can't handle two successful female performers at once, but, um, you know, so I say this a little bit like tongue-in-cheek here, but some people are saying that Taylor really stole the show with the Grammys by announcing her new album, and I'm seeing a lot of that this morning about Beyonce, people saying that maybe she even overshadowed the halftime show or kind of, you know, stole the Super Bowl by making this announcement. But I do just kind of want to ask you this question in fun today. Who had the bigger, more epic announcement, do you think? Was it uh, Taylor at the Grammys or was it Beyonce at the Super Bowl?
1: Well, the one challenge is with uh, watching the, uh, the Super Bowl in Canada. You didn't get all the commercials, so you didn't see the Beyonce commercial. For that very reason alone and the fact that they still kept cutting to Taylor Swift during the Super Bowl itself and only I only remember really seeing Beyonce in the stands once I'm going to say Taylor Swift for that very reason now that's not to say that uh, fans aren't excited about Beyonce I just think this is kind of Taylor's year everyone's been kind of caught up in it and it's she's kind of hard to beat and it's on the tip of everyone's tongue what about you Laura?
7: Oh, see, I thought Beyonce had it for sure. I thought that was epic with the commercial and then the tracks coming out. But, you know, I hadn't thought of that angle of not seeing the commercials. And again, probably that comes down to me not watching it live. And I did watch (laughs) it like this morning, the clips of that commercial. And I thought, oh, this was um, absolutely. But that was an angle I hadn't thought of. So I'm going to give it to Beyonce. You're going to give it to Taylor. But either way, both of them extremely uh, successful right now, which is good to see.
1: Agree to disagree, that's how I like it. Laura, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day.
7: Yeah, thanks, Alex. You too.
1: And that was Laura Bain, entertainment reporter in Halifax. Coming up after the break, the Super Bowl talk continues as Brock Richardson stops by with the sports report to recap all the action you're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. It is Monday, February 12, 2024. Coming up on the second hour of the show, there's a new app in town called Project Tapestry. Sean Priest gives you the scoop And the Tripping On Air podcast has a new episode about the concept known as smoldering MS. Ryan Delahanty gives you a sneak preview. All that and more to come, but first, we start with a sports chat with Brock Richardson. And before I welcome in Brock to talk all about the Super Bowl, I want to play a couple of clips because it was a big night for Kansas City as they beat San Francisco 25-22. Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey reflected on the wind.
2: Man, it means everything. I, I couldn't be more proud of these guys for the, the fight, the the heart, um, rallying together when everybody was counting us out. When, when Vegas had the odds against us, we came into Vegas and beat them, baby. And it's, uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, scenario knowing that uh, everything that this team's been through, man. And uh, man, I hope we can keep this team so we can do it all over again.
1: He also had a lot of praise for his quarterback, Patrick Mahomes
2: crown him what he's done this year what he's done over the course of his career up to this point nobody's
1: ever done and I'm just uh, I couldn't be happier for him and uh, I love my guy man all that to say I think the Chiefs are pretty happy to win that one Brock Richardson what are your takeaways from last night's Super Bowl
11: I mean what a game I mean we were here on Friday and we said uh you know uh well I said I don't want to say we (laughs) I said they would win by Seventeen, and they would just mm-hmm. take control of this and, and that would be that. And I think, you know, Brock Purdy and company really stepped in and said, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to be here. And, and this is just the way it was. I thought it was a fantastic game. I love the fact that they... Kansas City basically didn't even really celebrate before they said, hey, we're going to run this back. We're going to be back here. They, they, you know, it's been a long time since uh, somebody has won uh, two Super Bowls. The last team to do it was the Patriots, which I don't think surprises many people, but there's been nobody to run it back three times. And so I think if anyone can do it, it's Kansas City. And you got to just admire the success that they've had. And I, I think, you know, Andy Reid, I think, he'll be wanting to be back i know there was lots of discussion on the pregame show about what his future is but i think you see this team looking very much the same today as it does next
1: year i just think they're apt to run it back it was such a fascinating game because the first half was really a defensive struggle back and forth there weren't a lot of points scored i think it was like something like 10 to 6 by the uh by the end of the first half and then Really, the offenses came alive late in the third quarter and really fueled that because uh, this game went to overtime. That's another thing that is very rare. It's like the second longest game in Super Bowl history. Um, and it was really kind of Interesting seeing the strategy I I had predicted that there was going to it was going to be a tight game But there was also going to be I said a missed field goal. It ended up being a missed point after try um, That really kind of changed the momentum and in the strategy for San Francisco because if they had made that point it would have forced Kansas City at the end of the game to go for a touchdown instead of just going for the field goal. And and it wouldn't have necessarily been a tie game at the end of regulation, but it was tied. It went to overtime. San Francisco was driving. They got down to the five-yard line, Brock, but just couldn't punch it home. And then you gave the ball back to Mahomes. And you saw Mahomes lead his team down the field, score the touchdown, get the win. That was the real difference at the end of the game. The two quarterbacks, just a five-yard difference between Mahomes and Brock Purdy, both very good, but Mahomes is just that extra bit better that really brought home the win to Kansas City and allowed that team to repeat as champions. And it comes with experience, Alex. Like, it comes with just...
11: You could see it. Like I turned to the people I was with. I was with one of my co-hosts, Josh Watson, who's uh, probably watching this segment right now. And, and, you know, I turned to him and I said, listen, there's nobody else in this league that I would rather have the ball in, in that under two minute offense, other than Patrick Mahomes. And the, you know, San Francisco turned the ball over, you know, early in the, in the first half. And, and again, we had the conversation of a man, if Kansas city can capitalize, they're going to run. and, san francisco's defense held them off and i thought really they were going to get some momentum but just i just think it's that you know and i'm going to use a cliche here alex and say it's that ice in your veins moment and i think more of that ice exists in patrick mahomes than it does brock Purdy. and i think brock Purdy will be there i think the san francisco team will be there i think the coaching staff has them right where they want them it's just that level of experience to get them over the hump it really is uh, yeah and i
1: i'm I'm going to be very interested to see what happens with San Francisco going into this off season. They were so close. They, they took Kansas city to overtime. You know, they, they're a very talented team. I, I agree. I think they're, they're basically going to try to run it back as best as they can. Obviously there, there's a lot of players that, you know, they need contracts or uh, they, they have a lot of high paid players. Can they keep this team together? I don't know, but I think if, they're close to what they were this year. They're going to be favorites to be in the Super Bowl again. I could foresee this matchup recurring twelve months from now, and it may even sway yeah. in San Francisco's favor. I I still like that team as how they're constructed, how they're built. I love Brock Purdy as the quarterback. I'm I'm very excited to see these two teams kind of play each other going forward multiple times, and and. Hopefully, we get some really competitive football for years to come out. But, Brock, let's put football to bed for now. Uh, the Super Bowl is over. There's a bit of reprieve, despite me being a Chicago Bears fan and, and the offseason being our favorite part mm-hmm. of the year. Let's talk yeah. quickly before uh, we uh, say goodbye to sports. There was a lot of excitement also around women's basketball, especially when it came to Canada's Olympic qualification. This was a very tight and intense weekend. Give us a bit of a recap of the action.
11: Yeah, I mean, Canada lost uh, their last two games. Uh, They lost to uh, Spain and Japan uh, to finish out the tournament, uh, which then meant they needed some help. Uh, from uh, Spain to win the game uh, that they played against the host nation, uh, Hungary. Spain was leading, uh, was down by 20 going into the second half. They managed to scratch and claw themselves out of that hole, and they beat the host nation, Hungary, which meant that uh, Canada will be represented on the women's side for basketball. At the Olympic Games, along with the men, the last time this happened, Alex was 2000. And I, for one, love the fact that we get to see the men's and the women's program both here. I think it's going to be something that you're going to see uh, really push forth women's sports yet again. There was a lot of discussion on what the Professional Women's Hockey League has done for women's sports. And again, with basketball. So this is all just pushing women's sports in the right direction. And
1: I love it. Yeah, I, I do too. I I think it's great for the sports, great for uh for women's sports in Canada. I am concerned about this team though because you know they they had a uh, a win early in the tournament, but then as you say, you they dropped the final two games and they they needed Spain to have a twenty point recovery to beat Hungary and Hungary was like sixteenth ranked, so this shouldn't have been a contest, but it, it really came down to the wire. So hopefully. Come the Olympics, uh, the women's side can kind of learn from from this very tense situation, kind of grow from it and come into the Olympic competition prepared and ready to really fight and claw and and take on all competitions. So I'm excited, a little worried right now, but I'm sure there's still months away that they can address some of these issues. But Brock, thank you so much. We got to say goodbye to you. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Always nice to chat with you, Alex. Yeah, that is Brock Richardson at the sports desk coming up after the break. The technology conversation continues because there's a new app in town called Project Tapestry. Sean Priest gives you the scoop. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. There's a new app in town, and it's called Project Tapestry. It's designed to track new services and social media platforms. This sounds quite familiar, if I'm being honest. Is this something different, though? Or is this another pretender to X, formerly known as Twitter? Sean Priest is here to answer that question. Sean is one of the hosts of Double Tap, which airs daily at noon eastern on ami audio hello sean how are you doing today i'm doing great thanks how are you i'm not too bad i'm excited to learn about a potentially new kind of entry into the social media space is it going to be a replacement you is that it a alex you say <laughs> oh okay okay i, I, okay.
12: I to okay. just Just a little hint of, uh, I don't know, cynicism, maybe, sarcasm. We've seen these before. You're almost Mm -hmm. dismissive.
1: You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, okay, Let, let, let me lay this out, Sean, threads. Blue Sky, Mastodon. Yes, we have been here before. Yes, we have had conversations that this is going to be the replacement that folks who want that that new version of X or or the replacement to X to be. But what makes this one different from the others?
12: Okay, so this isn't actually another social media platform. Uh, The clue is in the name for this one, Tapestry. What this app is aiming to do, because at the moment, this is as a, um, what do they call it? What do the youth call it? A Kickstarter, that's it. (laughs) This is a Kickstarter project from a developer that uh, previously did the Twitter app Twitterific, for the iPhone and Mac, which was really well received amongst the visually impaired community and beyond actually, it was very good. But since that has gone away, Um, What they're looking at now is to weave uh, one app that weaves all these social media platforms into one place. And not only social media platforms, but also any blogs that you may follow, you know, websites, anywhere that has what they call an RSS feed. So something you could subscribe to. Listeners may be familiar with something called Apple Viz, the website. They have RSS feeds for different sections on their forums. So if you're interested in what new accessible apps there are, for example, you can grab a feed to that. And every time there's a new post on there, it will show up in the feed. And this is what this app called Tapestry is trying to do. Put one app together, which sort of aggregates everything that you're interested in every social media post every news article every blog
1: into one place sounds good it 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 certainly sounds good it sounds promising but Uh, You you had mentioned, too, like Twitterific, which was shut down uh, earlier this year, and and it had a lot of praise from uh, folks within the blind, partially sighted community and and beyond because of the accessibility features. As far as you know, like, are there any accessibility features with Tapestry? Is there anything that has been announced so far?
12: Well, again... uh... On their Kickstarter page, it does mention full support for screen readers. Mm. So uh, what we're taking on here is the reputation of the developer behind it, as I said, called Icon Factory, uh, previously uh, behind Twitterific. So they've got a sort of a reputation when it comes to accessibility. They've got a good um, communication going with our community. So. Um, I think, yeah, I haven't got too many worries when it comes to accessibility. I think they'll be on it. And and low Vision as well. They do mention in the Kickstarter AIMS about making dynamic font sizing and things like that. So this company is a company that's well aware of accessibility needs, and they always seem to um, hit the mark when it comes to accessibility.
1: And, And you mentioned this was a successor to Twitterific. Why was Twitterific shut down?
12: Well... Okay, so this is where it gets a little bit more complicated, Alex. So strap yourself in. Here we go. Um, Well, actually, it doesn't. It's very simple. Elon just said, no, no third-party apps Mm -hmm. can access the API, or at least for free. So every time a third-party app wanted to go onto your timeline, for example, and and download data, update, or browse the Twitter um, database. I know I should call it X, but (laughs) eh, I'm old. Uh, The Twitter database uh, there was a fee, and it was quite a large fee. Basically, it seemed like these sort of apps um, want to cut out third-party. So the only way to access it is through the official Twitter app. Kind of makes sense, right? There is there is money in the data, so they want to try and cut out and just keep it to themselves. So that's kind of where it went from. All third-party Twitter apps and things like that, they had to start to pay to access the Twitter database And they're not the only ones. We've had a big deal with Reddit uh, and third-party apps recently. They're doing the same thing. It seems to be uh, a lot of systems are closing the doors for third-party apps. And that's what happened with Twitterrific. And as I said, it was was really disappointing because the guys really did put their heart and soul into that app, especially when it came to accessibility. And, um, yeah, it was a real shame to see it go, but I can totally understand why it went away.
1: And so how would Project Tapestry be able to succeed where Twitterific uh, kind of failed or, or came up short?
12: Well, this is where it does get complicated, and this is where I have a slight problem. Now, on the okay. show, me and Stephen Scott have a disagreement about this. He is so hyper-excited about this app, as well uh, as other people in the community that's got a lot of interest, a lot of people talking about this. But I have one... I'm almost ashamed to say it. I have one slight problem with this and that is we still hit that same brick wall that mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter will not allow this app to gather any data from its database, its servers, its platform. So if this app does come about and I've got no doubt actually that it will, it's already hit its, its target on Kickstarter, um, it will be without Twitter and without Facebook. And my argument is, can you really have a one app to rule all, let's say, social media platforms? Because I think that's going to be main, uh, people's main interest, having one place for all your social media. Can you really have an app like that without the massive giants that are Twitter X or Facebook? I don't think you can.
1: No, I, I again, like those are the two biggest uh, or two of the biggest social media platforms uh, like active today yeah. you you can't have yeah. an all-encompassing one it's like oh no we just don't have any of the big ones but we got all these small ones together <laughs> like no one really cares about the small ones no right one and like,
12: i knew
2: you were and,
1: cynical i knew it yeah no but like, hey I, I i agree with you no yeah and and I, this I, is I, something go ahead sean Sorry, no,
12: I I agree with you, Alex. I t- I totally agree with you. Yeah. It does. It's going to support Mastodon. It's going to support Threads. Um, it's going to, as I said, all the other blogs. Anything that's publicly, any of that data that's publicly available, you will be able to aggregate into one place. As I said, Stephen, very very excited by that. He loves RSS feeds. He loves. He's such a news hound. Gathering all these news sources together and having it in one place is going to be cool. But As I said, I think the main interest for me would, I'm I'm going back to the old days. uh, You're far too young, Alex, of uh, Messenger, AOL Messenger, ICQ. There was all these different messaging, instant messaging apps. And there were a few of them that actually tried to put all the messaging uh, communication standards into one package or one app. Trillion was its name. So you had ICQ, MSN Messenger, and AOL Messenger, or Yahoo Messenger. All in one place. And that, for me, that's the beauty of some of these apps. It's just one place and you can deal with everything at once. And if you can't do that with Tapestry, if you are missing tw- your X, your Twitter, your Facebook, I'm sorry, then it's not one place to fit all. Uh, you're missing out yeah. on a huge chunk of your social media platforms.
1: I, I first off want to say I appreciate that you think I'm too young for uh, to remember the days of, of the messengers. Uh, <laughs> I, for one, uh, lived on MSN Messenger for many, many years. And I remember when you could change the color of your icon from the blue to like the purple to the like orange. You uh, know, and there's still that metallic color change. Orange. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, this was something that um, uh, earlier in the show, Marco Pasquale brought forward uh, this uh, new web browser that is like claiming that it's going going to basically be an aggregate for all sorts of information and same thing it was going to be able to pull from all these different sources and I was wondering it's like well you know part of the the issues was is the fact that all those other uh, sites have built-in ads or they have like a payment that they're getting from clicks. It's like, how is this going to like, how are these two things gonna square themselves? Cause it seems like it's gonna be in conflict that, well, the content uh, in the, the host sites are not gonna like it because they're gonna lose out on the ad revenue because they're not gonna get those clicks necessarily. It feels very similar where it's like it's the same thing with the, the X and the uh, Facebook and the meta that you're gonna be pulling content from all these different sources that may Already have you know ad revenue deals and things like that that you're not actually getting the the clicks or the value for the clicks to access that information, right, Sean?
12: Exactly. I mean, it's all about monetization. None of these big tech companies are in here for the good of the people. Well, very few. I would say none of them. Um, it's all about monetization. So as soon as they see any area where they think that's causing harm to our bottom line. They're going to close down on that. They are going to go really hard on that. Now, as I said, with tapestry, it's only going to access public data anyway. So there's no harm of it being closed down. But that's kind of the problem I have with it. It's just Mm -hmm. I want access to the services that I'm actually using more often. Um, There's a bit of uh, what you just mentioned there. There's a few YouTube apps out there that make YouTube really easy and accessible to use for screen reader users. But they also remove the ads Mm -hmm. from the videos. And for me, that's an issue because that means that that app could get shut down really, really quickly, and rightfully so. You know, the, the, uh, YouTube have a right to make money through the adverts. Um, and that means by simply sidestepping the ads that we also miss out on the accessibility of that app, the accessibility that it brings. Yeah, you know, I've got no problem with ads and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it is an issue.
1: Well, we, I think we, we've kind of uh, talked enough about Tapestry. We're both cynical about it. Let's turn to something a bit yes. more positive. What is coming up on today's episode of Double Tap? Oh, today's Double Tap. Let me think. Okay, yes,
12: we are going to talk because Stephen has found something on the Mac, a feature of VoiceOver, that has changed his life. And you know, Stephen, he never over-exaggerates, so I'm sure that's absolutely true. (laughs) He's also bought two new products this week that have absolutely changed his life.
1: So we're going to talk about Stephen's life-changing week. I mean, that sounds like a great tease to tune in (laughs) for sure. Uh, Before I let you go, I want you to weigh in on our daily poll today because it has to do with favorite web browsers. And folks at home, they can also vote in on X at Accessible Media, Facebook, Accessible Media, Inc. Sean, what is your favorite web browser? Is it Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Microsoft Edge, or Apple Safari? You have to choose one of those four.
12: Oh, do you know what? It's easy for me. It's whatever comes with the system. So it's going to (laughs) be Microsoft Edge. I'm sorry to say, because Mm -hmm. right at the beginning, Microsoft Edge was very ropey when it came to accessibility. But right now, it's absolutely fantastic. And that's because it's basically Chrome with a new skin.
1: So I'm going to go with Microsoft Edge. Ironically, that seems to be the recurring theme that everyone we've spoken to, they're all a little bit lazy about changing their web browsers to what is already (laughs) on the base system. Sean, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks a lot. You too. See you later. That was Sean Priest, who is one of the co-hosts of Double Tap, and the show airs noon daily Eastern time on AMI-audio, and he was joining us from Glasgow, Scotland. Nope. Manchester England let's uh, be clear about that and you can also follow the team on Twitter at double tap on air coming up after the break we'll have the round table topic because Elizabeth Muller wants to talk all about dealing with winter weather you're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI TV Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Meissen for Dave. Elizabeth Moeller, before we welcome in this arena of Del Majeed, you wanted to set up the round table today all about winter storms and winter weather. What's on your mind?
6: Yeah, picking up from uh, Michelle's topic at the beginning of uh, the segment today, you know, the winter storm in the Maritimes, Halifax, you know, 40 centimetres of snow. It's it's interesting. It's a bit of a, a personal one for me, not just because I live with sight loss, but uh, my brother's a paramedic out there and um, he's been sharing some of the stories of just some of the falls and injuries that folks have had due to that weather. So, um, yeah, I just thinking a little bit about, you know, All of us, uh, you know, the Roundtable have sight loss. You know, what is your your biggest sort of winter challenge? And, and, you know, maybe thinking about what is one thing that you kind of do to mitigate walking out in in bad weather and you can't say not going outside because sometimes you have to go outside (laughs) but you know I I think for me one of the biggest challenges is actually when I get uh, this happens a lot on campus a notification that quote unquote the sidewalks are cleared and I go out and either there's a very thin path that's been cleared so very difficult for somebody with a cane or a mobility device Or they've been cleared and what ends up happening is the snow is in front of bus stops. So then the buses reroute and they'll stop at a different place. And that's a really big challenge when you're trying to to navigate as somebody with sight loss. So I'd love to hear from you, Nazreen and and Alex, about sort of your your biggest challenge when you're navigating wintry, wet weather conditions.
8: Point, um, when bus stops stop at a, you know a spot where there's a hill and you have to climb on top of the hill to get into the bus. I think that's so annoying. It happens too much. Um but I think the biggest challenge for me is to is seeing the sidewalk or memorizing my route to my destination. Um because it feels like a bright light shining in your face right when you walk out of the house. I don't know a lot of people don't understand what I mean. Um, but right when I walk out of the house, because there's so much snow, it's all white. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's a light in your face. You can barely see. It takes time to adjust, um, your eyesight takes time to adjust. And so I have to start memorizing my route. Okay. So there's like two traffic lights until I get to my bus stop. And that's where I have to, you know, start memorizing and, and double check the bus drive uh buses and and uh you know go extra early, so I'm not late to my destination, especially that like my routes are so far, so I have to take buses and trains and and subways so um that's pretty challenging for me
1: yeah i I will say like i I know exactly what you mean in because of that snow acts as a reflector you know especially for me yeah. like i have light sensitivity mm-hmm. um so i'm usually even like on an overcast day during you know any time of the year, I'm usually going to have my glasses, my sunglasses on just because of how the light impacts my vision. It's more so obviously when it's a fresh snow that's really going to get up in in the eyes. That said, I I do like it because especially when it gets darker in the day or if it's mm-hmm. you know in the the dead of winter and it's you know dark at three o'clock, four o'clock, mm-hmm. five o'clock, depending where you are in the country it's nice that it adds a bit more of that reflection. I can actually see (laughs) and navigate a bit better. But for me, the biggest challenge I've always struggled with is when there are ice and, uh, kind of hardened areas of like walking paths and things like that. I, Mm -hmm. when I was in Edmonton, I slipped multiple times. I fell on my back multiple times, walking around trying to get to and from work because the ice was so bad and the grip was not very good. Um, I invested in some good like strong grip winter boots but even beyond oh, that crampons. like what i or, or crampons but you don't always want to be wearing crampons just like walking around because then you have to take them off and on yeah, and and things like that but the thing i always started uh, i i found very helpful especially after like three days four days if there's a bit of a a melt and freeze again and and there's like that that kind of ice that's really set in on those major walking paths i i prefer to walk on the snow. Because I'm almost guaranteed the snow is gonna be packed down a bit. It's gonna be more traction for you. And it's gonna probably provide better grip than walking on the ice. Now that said, you don't necessarily know what's underneath the snow. (laughs) <laughs> but uh that's you see how I would do it especially if it's like the entire sidewalk is just ice um, now Elizabeth, you kind of mentioned too it's just like it's the the bus uh kind of stops being filled with snow or you have to kind of navigate a a kind of partially cleared way how do you go about doing that how how do you deal with those situations when they do happen
6: yeah it's a it's a really good um Point. I think there's a couple of things. Sometimes um, I'll call, wh- whether it's London Transit, if I'm in London or Toronto, and just ask if, if there's been uh, movement of bus stops. I know sometimes on campus, they'll put out bulletins, like buses not stopping in front of natural science due to, um, due to inclement weather. So that's one thing I'll do. Um, you know, sometimes that might be a day where I take paratransit. I find the hardest with the with the narrow pass and, and you know, they're saying, oh, it's cleared. Um, you know, for that, I just, I try to typically either wear crampons or good boots walk a little bit more slowly um you know sometimes I might and and I do this very sort of cautiously um I'll walk sort of between like at the edge of the sidewalk right on the on the road which is not always the greatest but sometimes the sidewalks are just too difficult um but you know of course being very careful I think the the other thing too um, that I've started to do Um, is really kind of getting some winter O&M because we forget those skills. Like traveling in the summer, especially, Nasreen alluded to this, in routes that you know really well, you sort of have your winter route and you might navigate a little bit differently and then your summer routes. So one thing I've started to do is when that first snowfall hits and you don't always know when that's going to happen is to try to book some winter O&M just to brush up those skills. And one last thing, I believe in winter tires for the white cane. So I have a rollerball tip um, on the end of my cane that I use in winter to navigate the snow.
1: No. Oh, that's a very good tip. Pardon the the pun there, <laughs> Elizabeth. But uh, Nisreen, I want to give you a last word uh, before uh, we end the conversation here. I uh, do you typically wear like things like sunglasses when that uh, that snow is extra bright, or is it just uh, it doesn't work for you?
8: It really doesn't work for me. I tried sunglasses. Um, it just it's one thing that I just have to memorize my route. Mm-hmm. I think that's my best option. Um and I agree with you about walking on the snow it's 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 one of the best options for me as well because I can't really see the ice as well so um it's very risky I've had so many countless injuries in the winter time so it's it's a struggle one thing I would suggest is is also to do everything that I that I don't do um I'm going to point out that <laughs> I don't have grip on shoes, so that's mm-hmm. that's one good point. Um, I don't spend a lot of money on my jackets. That's another good point. It's it's uh, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Like I was yeah. looking into good jackets, and it was like fifteen hundred dollars, and it's hard Oof. to spend that amount, you know. So um, oh, that's an expensive
6: jacket.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't it, think it you is. need to go There's quite to fifteen hundred dollars there initially. Mean, approximately... I know you. you have... <laughs> You have good taste. Awesome. I, I appreciate that. You you can find a better deal <laughs> just spending yeah, a bit less. I, yeah,
8: I say go on Facebook Marketplace and look for yep. a good deal, even if it's <laughs> even if it's used. Um, but yeah, so I there's a lot of things that I don't do that I should. Um, but one thing I do point out is that I do wear layers in the winter time because I know mm. my arthritis acts up very much in the wintertime. So wearing layers does
1: help. Good one very good, very good. Thank you both, Nazarene and Elizabeth. Have yourselves you. a wonderful day. You thank you. And as you may have noticed, there was no Ramia on the panel uh, on the round table, uh, but that's okay. I still get to let you know what's coming up on today's show because Amy Manty will tell you about her art show through my lens. The Lion Foundation of Canada Dog Guides are looking for volunteers who have type 1 diabetes to participate in a program and Devin Wilkins will give you all the details for that and There also is going to be another edition of Know Your Rights with Danielle McLaughlin, who speaks to a law student, Nima Shirali, all about the Innocence Project. So that's all coming up on Kelly and Ramya today, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV. And coming up after the break, the Tripping on Air podcast has a new episode all about a concept known as Smoldering MS. Ryan gives you a sneak preview. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. I'm Alex Smythe. The Tripping on Air podcast brings you a closer look into the lived experiences of MS with host Ardra Shepard. The podcast recently dropped an episode about a concept known as smoldering MS. Ryan Delahanty is the AMI uh, is AMI's podcast coordinator, and he is here to give you a sneak peek into the latest episode. Good morning, Ryan. How are you doing? Good, good. Great to be here with you, Alex. How are you today? I'm doing well, Ryan. So this latest episode, is it's titled, What the Heck is Smoldering MS? So what is it talk, uh, taking a look at? What is smoldering MS there, Ryan?
0: Well, ever wondered why your MS seems to be getting worse, even though you're not having any relapses, your MRI is stable, but you feel anything but... On the February 9th edition of Tripping on Air, hosts Ardra Shepard and Alex Hajar speak with Dr. Jiwon Oh of the Barlow MS Center in Toronto, and they discuss what smoldering MS is and what can be done about it. Whether you're hearing about smoldering MS for the first time or looking for the latest in scientific research, uh, you should not miss this episode.
1: And so let us know, like, what is smoldering MS? Because I hadn't heard of it uh, until I saw the script and and saw this segment and I was like, oh, I had no idea what this is.
0: Uh, so smoldering MS, it's really been a hot topic recently and describes the phenomenon of multiple sclerosis patients experiencing a gradual worsening of the condition, but one that is often not reflected in medical exams. So they, you know, make comparisons to the smoldering campfire. It's still it's still burning. It's still there, but it's not necessarily flaring up and reaching, you know, crisis uh levels where you need to intervene. And so in the episode, Dr. Jiwon Oh, who is a foremost expert on the subject, uh, being staff neurologist, scientist, and medical director of the Barlow Multiple Sclerosis Program at St. Michael's Hospital, as well as associate professor at the University of Toronto, specializing in the care of people living with MS, And uh, so Dr. O's research focuses on developing advanced MRI techniques in the spinal cord and brain for use in clinical studies and is recognized internationally with the work that she's doing um, with a bunch of different organizations. And uh, she is deeply committed to caring for people with MS, educating future generations of clinicians and scientists, and contributing to developments that will drive the field forward.
1: And you mentioned, uh, Doctor, oh, uh, we have a clip uh, from uh, the the episode where uh, she talks about strategies to help mitigate smoldering MS. So let's have a listen.
8: It sounds maybe like while we wait for treatments, a lot of the strategies to help mitigate smoldering MS are the same kind of strategies that you would employ to um, mitigate the facts of aging in general. Is that true?
10: Absolutely. So, you know, I, I always say um, in clinic, um, while we're waiting for treatments to become available that can actually target smoldering MS, in the meantime, the best things you can do is maintain a healthy lifestyle. And so I say, in general, what's good for um, your general neurological health. So all of these things like, you know, sleeping well, eating well, a Mediterranean diet has been shown in many, many different disease states um, to be really healthy. Um, and. Not even in um, disease states, in just you know normal aging, Um, it's such a kind of healthy target. And then um, you know keeping your mind and your body active, Um, and these are all the things that, um, regardless of whether you have a chronic disease or not, it's amazing for me to see sometimes you know at the age of sixty the different trajectories that people's um, you know general health takes. And this is based on just like. Decades of habits, you know, and so um, you know all of these healthy living principles: regular exercise, having a great social network, keeping your mind active and interested. All of these things are essential for maintaining um, brain health, um, particularly as you get older.
8: I love these tips because these are things that are within our control while we wait for science to catch
1: up. So that is tripping on air, in the new episode of airs and are released the second friday of each month and you can find the podcast on youtube by searching at tripping on air podcast or you can also subscribe through your favorite podcasting platform Uh, now another uh, podcast you wanted to profile uh, ryan was the pulse hosted by joita gupta in her most recent episode she explores the challenges of uh for persons with disabilities when it comes to emergency preparedness. So what is explored within this latest episode? So
0: definitely a timely episode after all the snow we've received here in Atlantic Canada the past couple weeks. And this has, over the last few years, been quite a a hot topic in the region. So I was really pleased to see Joita interviewing uh, somebody from Halifax here and uh, about emergency preparedness for people with disabilities, where she's talking to Caitlin Lowe, who is policy researcher at McKechn Institute for Public Policy at Dalhousie University. And so there's a lot of really important topics and aspects of this subject addressed in the conversation looking at having you know your go bag your emergency supply kits and some of the accessibility issues with that um the barriers that exist in emergency transportation and housing so can you actually get to that emergency shelter once you get there is it accessible to you and uh you know a critical aspect effective communication during a crisis and then really tailoring the services to the nuance of local communities and making sure that you know there's not this what's perceived as a one-size-fits-all that maybe doesn't make sense in certain regions or uh, situations.
1: Absolutely. And we have a clip uh, from this episode as well, so let's give it a listen.
4: Within the past two years, I've definitely seen the conversation around vulnerable persons registries um, evolve more and more, and that's particularly in the context of Nova Scotia, where um, it was really looked at in the follow-up to uh, Fiona. And now, many different municipalities uh, in Nova Scotia have essentially implemented uh, their own versions of vulnerable persons registry or voluntary vulnerable persons registries. And more and more communities are looking to do the like. And a lot of it comes from the fact that um, municipalities lead emergency response, so it really it starts with the local governments. Um, And again, that can play into the capacity issues, the how information is stored, how securely is it stored, um, and often um, the best practices is really to try and limit as much as possible who can access the data and try and make sure it's as secure as possible. And that also people um, who are signing up for the service uh, fully understand um, what, what it is that they can expect uh, from signing up on the service. So I think uh, Halifax, for example, has done a really good job and many of the Nova Scotia communities have sort of tried to follow the same suit in the sense of like um, by stating very clearly that by um, putting yourself on the registry or sort of providing information about what your needs are in emergency to help with prioritization but putting yourself on the list doesn't necessarily guarantee immediate support so there's a lot of risk in sort of managing um, those expectations
1: and so new episodes of the pulse air on ami audio at 2 pm eastern time every saturday you can find the video podcast on YouTube by searching The Pulse AMI or you can visit AMI.ca slash The Pulse for links to all the audio podcast platforms for the show. Ryan, this is great. It's always lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for bringing these two uh, um, kind of previews to, to us and have yourself a wonderful day and hopefully you're you're not too covered in snow yet out there in Halifax.
0: Think it's happening again tomorrow, but hopefully we'll be okay. And thanks so much for having me.
1: That was Ryan Delahanty, who is AMI's podcast coordinator. So coming up tomorrow on the show, green hydrogen is becoming a renewable energy alternative, and Lawrence Gunther explains how it can exist in the move away from fossil fuels. So that is now with Dave Brown, airing weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIPlus.ca. I just want to quickly thank our guests today, Marco Pasqua, Michelle McQuig, Amy Amanti, Sean Priest, and you just heard from Ryan Delahanty. So we had a great show. It's the end. I want to thank you all. I'm Alex Smythe. I'll be with you all week filling in for Dave as he recovers after the Super Bowl. So be sure to tune in. We're going to have some great conversations throughout the week. Until next time, take care.